Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Are you back at the office? Today we're talking about how the workplace has changed now that many office workers have spent the last 16 months doing remote work. We'll hear the pros and cons with Alexander Samuel, author of Remote Inc., How to Thrive at Work, Wherever You Are. And later we'll learn how some companies are redesigning workspaces for staff. And we want to hear from you, too. Do you like being back or are you dreading the return? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. In Connecticut, some big employers like Pratt & Whitney have decided to keep a large portion of workers home. Joining us now on Zoom to explain is Jill Albertelli. She's Senior Vice President of Transformation and Strategy at Pratt & Whitney. Jill, welcome to the show. Good morning. Great to be here, Lucy. So I understand uh, we've known now for a few weeks about Pratt's decision to have about 80% of salaried workers uh, work remotely on a permanent basis. So talk through how you came to that decision. Sure thing. I mean, first, we've been working essentially remotely for almost a year and a half now. So we know we can do it. And the way that we look at it, we've been able to do it without really any appreciable drop in productivity. So we've also always had a little bit of a space for, you know, issue for offices in our East Hartford campus. And we thought, hey, let's take a real clean sheet approach to this and think about the future for our employees today, but also for those employees of the future. How could we keep this more flexible? You mentioned uh, not seeing drop in productivity, and I think a lot of companies were worried about that, right? And the pandemic, so many of us working from home, uh, managers not able to kind of keep track of, of their, what their staff is doing, so many Zoom meetings. So how did you measure productivity? And I would assume if there had been a drop, maybe this decision would be different? Sure, and it's a great question. I mean, you know, we don't, uh, we're gone is the day that, uh, your boss is, you know, counting what head is in what seat. It's really about what you're producing, meeting your milestones for large programs and things like that. And, you know, in essence, with the flexibility that we've been able to give employees and the tools, we've seen and continue to progress on all of our key milestones and projects for our products and support of our customers, you name it. And candidly, employees are happier. And that, in, in essence, will help you get more things done. So how many Pratt & Whitney workers will be working remotely, Jill? Right. So it's a great question. This uh, first site that we are doing is our headquarters, and we're piloting the program there. There are over 7,000 uh, salaried staff employees there, and about 80% will be in roles that will categorize as what I'll call remote or hybrid. So what does that mean? That means that they might come to the office a couple days or once a week, really for those 
types of things that they need to collaborate with other people on, or they might not come into the office space at all. But we've been flexible. So even if someone is categorized in a remote type of role, they can still come on site to campus. You mentioned uh, the main site, so that's in East Hartford. But what about uh, when we think about production at Pratt? Uh, how does that impact Middletown and other locations? Yeah, sure. So this is the pilot, and really our objective is to go not only across the Pratt and Whitney facilities in you know Connecticut or the United States or worldwide, but actually take all of our lessons that we're learning and our standard work and apply it across the Raytheon technologies, um, different locations uh, globally. So really, we're, we're trying this out first. It's exciting, and we're adapting along the way. Of course, for our production workers and for some of the salary staff, there are jobs that you have to be on site to complete, and that will certainly continue. In some areas, again, it will be more flexible than it's been in the past, but we do see the need for a combination across the board. So folks on site, folks in a hybrid or remote categorization as well. You're hearing Jill Albertelli here on Where We Live. She's Senior Vice President of Transformation and Strategy at Pratt & Whitney. We're talking about Pratt's decision to have 80% of their salaried workers continue to work remotely on a permanent basis. We want to hear from you as well. If you're back in the office, if your company or employer has embraced a hybrid schedule, how do you feel about it? Maybe you haven't returned just yet. We want to hear from you, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Jill, you mentioned that employees are happier. And so uh, tell us what you've been hearing from them. And have you heard any pushback from people who are used to working in an office setting and worry about what this means uh, for how they manage, but also the work that's being done? Sure. The um, feedback definitely has changed, you know, through, through the timing and the phasing of all of this. Uh, our change management and communication process is really the most important thing that we can do. Yes, the physical space is very important, but how we are working with our employees to ensure we have their feedback is the most important thing. So it started with their feedback being, hey, wait a minute, we're proving that we can work at least part-time remote. Can we have more flexibility in the future? But then of course there are, you know, some folks that have been working in the company for decades and a little bit hesitant around, you know, gee, I, I love working at Pratt. I've been there for decades. I like working alongside people who have become my friends. But again, the digital tools that we've put in place really have helped employees, one, be more efficient, but two, see that they can still collaborate if they're remote or if they might be in the office and be working with someone that is remote. So much um, more of the feedback now is, you know, we're really being innovative on our approach and the, flex the flexibility that it's giving our employees. So much more positive as we progress. And again, we're going to take the feedback from our team members throughout and adjust accordingly. So what happens with your physical space uh, in East Hartford if 80% will be working remotely permanently? How will that impact the community and even how you um, use that building and would you keep it? You know, so short. I mean, we have, first of all, focused on the best buildings that we've got on the campus. And that's really where we're changing configurations, putting in more collaboration space. And then, you know, really, we're going to decide and see what happens to the unused office space. We have time to do that. You know, this is a multi-phase 
type of project. And we want to leave that flexibility in for all of us. Uh, Pratt obviously employs a lot of people when we think about attracting talent. Do you think this this switch to remote work permanently will impact hiring uh, on a, in a positive manner, attract talent uh, that you may not have been able to get before? Most definitely. It is absolutely a way to attract talent, you know, maybe across the board. You know, we do think that people will be local because they'll want to come into the facility on occasion, but it will mean that we can really cast the net more widely to bring in the talent that's needed. And the other piece of it is retention. The great employees that we have, we want to keep them and giving them this level of flexibility throughout different phases of their career or their life definitely will make them want to stay working at Pratt & Whitney. Jill Albertelli, again, is Senior Vice President for Transformation and Strategy at Pratt & Whitney. Jill, thank you for your time today. We appreciate it. My pleasure. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Today we're talking about how employers are handling the workplace and their staff 16 months after remote work began in the pandemic. Uh, Joining us now on the phone is Ken Gosselin. He's a business writer at the Hartford Current. Ken, welcome back. Hi, Lucy. How are you today? I'm doing well. So we just heard from Pratt and the reasons behind uh, shifting many of their salaried workers to remote work permanently. What's what are you hearing in our state related to some of the big employers and the decisions they are making or will make? Yes, there is definitely a move towards uh, bringing in more of the remote work component. Uh, Travelers, one of course, one of our very large employers in downtown Hartford, um, has announced that they are going to bring back uh, really thousands of their workers to downtown, but in a different configuration. They will allow uh, these employees to work um, up to two days at home. So there'll be a remote option for these uh, for these workers. And other large uh, employers in the city, uh, Aetna being one of them, which I've spoken with, they also, you know, are going to bring people back, but are going to have a bigger remote component uh, to their workforce. So I think the the companies are seeing that the employees like the option of this and are trying to, you know, work with that um, as they kind of come out of the pandemic here. You mentioned travelers, you know, back in July, they wanted to see their workers return to the office in mid-September on a hybrid model, but that's changed recently. Tell us about uh, what the change is and why. Yes. Uh, well, I, I th- and this was just really a less than two weeks ago, they had uh, uh, talked about, you know, bringing back in mid-September, but the surge with the uh, Delta variant of the coronavirus has really made them rethink. And um, as of yesterday, they were telling me that they are pushing this back at least a month now uh, till uh, they bring their people back. Now, of course, there are some people who are working in the office, but we're talking about the largest number here. So there is concern about this uh, about this new variant and you know it's very contagious and uh, what that could mean so they're they're kind of holding off a little bit uh, so it's pushing back the schedule a little bit longer I had asked uh, Jill Albertelli from Pratt about the fact that, you know, their East Hartford campus will be a lot more vacant uh, with uh, this switch to permanent work. So talk through, um, you know, when we think about empty office spaces and empty buildings, you know, what are the, the longer term consequences for the communities? 
Well, I think that uh, there are uh, there's no way around it. There's fewer people, and that can impact obviously uh, restaurants, which heavily depend, especially in Hartford, uh, on the. Uh, the, the lunchtime crowd and also the after work crowd is very important uh, for for their their livelihood and so that definitely is a concern. Uh, I've spoken with some business people uh, who say that well you, maybe that there won't be a huge impact because you know maybe you're in the only in the office three days a week but you're maybe more likely to go out. For a co- with a colleague to lunch to talk about things when you are together. So, but I, I really do think that there is a concern with fewer number of people how that will ripple out. I mean, we already saw it that my colleague Susan Dunn wrote today about the uh, restaurant, which is that the, the uh, Harvard Public Library, the kitchen is closing uh, simply because there weren't enough workers uh, during the pandemic to keep it going. So I, I think that we really have to keep close watch on that. Mm. You know, Governor Lamont uh, has been traveling around the state uh, recently talking about, you know, big companies uh, headquartering in uh, Connecticut. Um, And I'm just wondering when we think about how the workforce and the workplace is changing, that, you know, these companies can have people working from anywhere in the world, you know, the longer term impacts for a state like Connecticut. Yes, uh, well, that, that 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 is very true. That uh, you know, you could have a company based here, but the the worker may be somewhere else in the country, and so that does have an impact because, of course, you want people living here, you know, to you know, just be part of the economy and paying taxes and going out to you know patronizing restaurants and and all the things that we kind of do in the course of our lives. Uh, and so, yes, that could have an impact there. Uh, most uh, definitely, definitely. Of course, always good to have in the headquarters, you know, or a main operation in Connecticut. But I think we're going to see as we go forward here that people can kind of live anywhere. So when we talk back, uh, getting back to the the spaces, the office spaces, the office parks, uh, those can't easily be uh, zoned to become a residential. We know that uh, you know affordable housing and access to uh, rental units that's a big issue here in our state. Yes, it, it most definitely is, and uh, so how that will kind of play itself out will is is yet to be seen here. But if if companies do downsize because they don't need as much space, there is going to be a lot more office space that is not being occupied. And that's still kind of developing here uh, as we kind of go along, but uh, that is going to be a definite thing to be watching. Now, I know uh, the Connecticut uh, state uh, government, uh, you know, Governor Lamont wanted uh, state employees to be back in the office by July 1, and then they hit some snags uh, dealing with the yeah. unions. What can you tell us about uh, any the agreement that's been reached related to, to telework? Yes, they, uh, as of yesterday, one of my colleagues, Jessica Harke, uh, she was reporting on this. And uh, so they've kind of reached an agreement now um, that just by way of background, uh, the governor had ordered all state workers back by July 1, but the unions kind of pushed back on that saying, hey, you know, we've got to talk about this whole transition back as part of the agreement, you know, that we did, that we went to remote. So what they came up with yesterday was uh, that through the end of the year, there can, uh, workers can spend at least, at least 
50% of their time working remote. So this is kind of a compromise here uh, to, because I really do think, and, and Jill had mentioned this earlier, that some people do like really like working from home. And uh, so this is kind of a way to kind of ease back into it um, as we kind of go forward through the end of the year here. When we were talking about the hybrid approach, is this something you know that you're hearing from more employers, Ken, that this is the the future? Uh, you know, like having that flexibility. It, yes, it, it absolutely is because it just in by way of the travelers and um, even Aetna is saying that uh, they already there already was a move towards more of I guess you call it hybrid working from home uh, even before the pandemic. Okay, and so more workers were, but this has kind of accelerated that trend. And uh, so I think you're going to see that the, you know, the workplace is is not going to be the going in, you know, like we all may have thought about it, you know, just even a couple of years ago, but it'll be split between different, you know, your home, you'll be there sometimes, kind of what Jill was talking about earlier, uh, that you may want to go in for meetings, uh, but it won't necessarily always be uh, that you're going in nine to five every day. Uh, certainly their uh, travelers has told me they're going to have a large number of people in the office. So uh, it won't, it's not everyone, but there is this component that does give some more flexibility. Have you been hearing from any travelers workers who aren't too pleased about that, Ken? <laughs> uh, well, actually, I, I have not recently. Um, earlier on, I, I did hear a little bit. Um, I think there was definitely a, 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 a liking of the flexibility um, of being able to, to be at home uh, part of the time. And I think that, that they're recognizing that by giving this option saying you, you have to be in part of the week, but you can also work at home part of the week. So it kind of, you know, strikes a compromise there. And of course, travelers have said that some people will be, you know, 100% of the time at home as well. You've been hearing Ken Gosselin here on Where We Live. He's a business writer at the Hartford Current. Um, beyond talking about a hybrid schedules, coming up later, we're going to be talking about office design. How are companies changing workspaces uh, to increase collaboration in this new way of thinking about work? Uh, Ken, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Lucy. Uh, coming up after the break, uh, we just heard how some Connecticut companies are handling changes in the workplace and scheduling staff. But we're going to broaden that conversation and talk with author Alexandra Samuel and take your calls and questions, too. Have you returned to the office or hoping to? Maybe you're dreading that return. We want to hear from you. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for Extracorporeal Membrane Oxygenation, outside the body, oxygenation of blood. 
It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Last June, our show rolled out a Future of Work series. Maybe we were a bit optimistic the pandemic would be behind us by now. 16 months of remote office work has certainly begun to transform the 21st century workplace. Full disclosure, I never thought I'd have the ability to host a professional-sounding radio show from my spare bedroom. I do prefer the studio. Uh, we, we put out an informal poll on Twitter, uh, and uh, 8 out of 10 listeners said that they love working at home. What about you? We want to hear from you. 888-720-9677. Are you back in the office, or are you dreading that return? Uh, you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Coming up, we talked to Noel about how companies are changing office spaces to accommodate workers. But right now, joining us on Zoom is Alexandra Samuel, a regular contributor to the Wall Street Journal and author of Remote Inc., How to Thrive at Work Wherever You Are. Alexandra, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Lucy. So we were talking a little bit about Connecticut companies and some of their plans for the fall, but nationwide, you know, what data is there that talks about or shows us uh, what people are thinking about in relation to the return to work? This is probably the most studied moment in the history of the workplace. So we've got lots of data on uh, how people have experienced this past 18 months and, of course, now on what they would like in the months ahead. And you know, one thing that has been extremely clear in, in survey after survey, and this is what we found as well when we did, did our research for um, the book, uh, you know, the vast majority of, of people who've tried working remotely want to keep working remotely at least part of the time. And you know, the most widely cited survey on this is probably the one from uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers at the end of, of 2020, um, they found that 75% of employees want to keep working from home at least two days a week, and a third of employees want to work from home full time. So, you know, that is a very significant demand for remote work. And what that means for employers is, you know, <laughs> this isn't just kind of optional input. Um, Nicholas Bloom, who's a, an economist at Stanford and has been studying remote work for, for years, uh, just published an article last month where they looked at, you know, what, what are workers going to do if their employers try to force them back to the office? And the answer is that a third of employees say they would look for a new remote friendly job rather than have to work back you know, go back to the office full time. And 6% of them would quit right away without even looking for a new job. So when you think about that, I mean, what employer can afford to lose 40% of its workforce? I mean, and it it isn't going to be the least talented portion, right? The people who are going to vote with their feet are people with scarce skills who are going to be hard to replace. 
I'm glad you brought that up, Alex, because there is that labor data. Four million Americans quit their jobs in April. This is a 20-year record. This idea that you know they want to find a job uh, that fits uh, their lifestyle now. And frankly, you know, how many companies are willing to pay workers more uh, to stay? Well, and and I think actually we need to recognize this isn't just about lifestyle. There mm-hmm. are hard costs to employees for going to the office every day. And many people find that they're more productive when they're working from home. And again, that was data that they came through really clearly in our book. Um, the majority of people who work from home feel they are as productive or more productive when they're working from home. And the longer people work remotely, the more they see that productivity gap because remote work is a learned skill. It, it's not easy to go from working in an office to working from home and figuring out how to balance, you know, your, your Zoom calls with your toddler interrupting. Obviously, many of us felt that pain uh, at the beginning of the, of the pandemic. But then you figure it out. And once you figure it out, you become more productive. You learn to do your work in a way that is more engaging, more um, attuned to your own personal rhythm, perhaps. Uh, and that way of working is not just about lifestyle. It's about feeling like you're making a contribution, doing work that matters, doing your best work. And who wants to give that up once you've found that your work can be part of your daily life in a really meaningful way? Uh, now, when we talk about a lot of employees want to be able to work from home at least part of the week, talk about the divide that's still being seen when we think about managers. Well, absolutely. There's a there's a huge gap. And again, you know, that PWC survey was super interesting because, you know, yes, they reported that the majority of workers want to stay home at least two days a week. But but the numbers are totally flipped when you talk to managers and, you know, still almost half. I mean, 40, 43 percent of executives say they want their employees back in the office basically as much as possible. And, you know, I think that reflects a couple things. Um, one is it is it is tough to make this transition to being um, a remote workforce and not every organization nailed it. I mean, there was a piece in, in HBR that came out, uh, I think, just just today about video game industry where they found that companies that had gone back uh, to the office during the pandemic um, were much more successful in shipping their game titles, whereas companies who'd stayed remote during the pandemic had a lot of delays. But to me, that's not a story about like, oh, remote is never going to work for companies. It's a story of, oh, this is something you actually have to work at and support your employees to do effectively. And the problem is that we had this transition to remote under the worst possible circumstances. I mean, first of all, you've got a global pandemic that makes people incredibly anxious and their kids are at home and it's like total chaos. Second of all, there's no planning. There was no structure in place. And third of all, people went full-time remote. And that is very different from a scenario where we're still in the office, let's say, a couple of days a week. Because as long as you, uh, you know, have those two days a week in the office, then first of all, you get the spontaneous collaboration, the face-to-face interaction that, you know, is so crucial to working effectively together. But also you get more from your remote days because you're not constantly interrupted by Zoom calls because you're doing your meetings on those office days and using your work from home days to do the kind of focused work that is so hard to do in the chaos of an office. 
Well, when we're thinking about managers and we see in this pandemic that workers can be productive, so what's the argument to have them come back for even part of the week if they don't want to? Well, I mean, the argument for having people come back is really an argument about the value of collaboration and the importance of, of interaction to fostering organizational culture. And that's why I think it's so important for organizations to see this as a tool rather than as a perk. Remote work, yeah, I mean, remote work is a perk for people. A lot of people love that flexibility, but it's primarily a tool for allowing people to get focused work done on their home days and being able to then have interaction on their office days. And that only works if you actually have a strategy that brings everybody into the office on the same day. And I think what is concerning me in this moment is we hear a lot of organizations who approach it as a perk and say, oh, I guess we'll have to let people pick a couple of days a week when they work from home. Wrong. I mean, if you let them pick their days, then, you know, the days that they come into the office to collaborate, they may or may not have any colleagues there. And so what you really need to do is build a schedule where you have uh, members of any given team or people who are collaborating closely in the office on the same days. Those are the days when they do their meetings. Those are the days when they do their brainstorming. Those are the days when they do, you know, the one-on-one with their manager to figure out how to work more effectively. And then when they leave the office, they have the opportunity to dive deep into, you know, writing, research, coding, the tasks that take concentration that are really hard to do when somebody could stick their head over your cubicle at any moment and interrupt you. You're hearing Alexander Samuel here on Where We Live. She's a regular contributor to the Wall Street Journal, author of Remote Inc., How to Thrive at Work Wherever You Are. As we talk about hybrid work schedules and how companies are navigating this with their staff, uh, if you're back at work on a hybrid schedule, we'd love to hear from you. How's it going? 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. A listener tweeted, I wouldn't mind going into the office a couple of days a week. At this point, all of my staff live outside of Connecticut. My boss also is not in Connecticut, so no one would be there anyway. So that's someone who (laughs) appreciates probably quiet, right, to help with productivity. But not everyone uh, works that way. Some people like bouncing off ideas. I think about how uh, traditional newsrooms uh, work and what we're all missing uh, here at our uh, company, Alexandra. Absolutely. And, you know, I've I've been working remotely for the vast majority of my career, more than 20 years. Um, And yeah, you know, I I feel just the same way. I mean, I think um, people who have worked remotely for a long time learn how to create those conversations, those collaborative aha moments in unconventional ways outside the workplace. If you have an organization where people work, you know, in the same city or the same region as colleagues, then bringing them together in the office on a regular basis makes tons of sense. But as your, you know, listener indicated, you know, the reality is a lot of organizations are already highly distributed. You know, they've got people all across the country. They might have employees working on teams that span different time zones, different countries. And at that point, you do have to ask, like, how much value are we really getting from hauling everyone into the office so they can do their Zoom calls from a cubicle instead of just letting them do those Zoom calls at home. And so that's why, you know, when you think about how to structure your your hybrid uh, work strategy, you really can't take a one-size-fits-all approach. You really need to look at each team and say, you know, what 
is the actual work of this team, how much of it is collaborative, how much of it is solitary, and how much of this team is even in the same city or the same time zone. And those are the kinds of nuanced questions you need to ask and address before you try and figure out how much to bring people back to the office or whether to bring them back to the office at all. You mentioned a balance earlier, Alex, and, you know, in the beginning, like you said, we were under this public health uh, emergency and there was no strategy and people were figuring it out as they went. But I'm wondering, depending on where you work, uh, you know, if people are able to get balance now or they still feel like if I'm working remotely that I'm going to have to be on whenever my boss or manager uh, reaches out. That's certainly been a, a challenge. And, um, you know, we, I just published a piece in the Wall Street Journal yesterday about how people are going to handle the challenge when their colleagues go back to the office. And they're the only person stuck at home. And one of the um, pieces of data that we shared uh, alongside that story was a, a graphic that showed how hours of work have steadily expanded over the course of the pandemic. Because, you know, how do you draw a line when you could be working anytime? And the answer really has to lie in shifting the way we think about organizing uh, work. You know, as, as we just heard from Pratt Whitney, you know, fewer and fewer jobs are actually defined by how many hours of the day you spend with your seat in a chair. And yet we still manage most workforces as if it was like, you know, a 19th century woolen mill where you want to make sure you have your workers at the loom for the longest number of hours possible. You know, the truth is that in professional roles, the amount of hours you put in is not really an indicator of outcomes. And I think most managers of information workers care more about what gets accomplished than how long it takes. And that means that there actually is the potential for remote work to give people a better work-life balance. Um, to get focused work done in a way that gives them more of their hours of the day back. I'm a big advocate, actually, for trying to work five hours a day when you're working remotely, because if you're not getting interrupted, if you've managed to um, concentrate your meetings on your office days or even just keep your Zoom calls to two or three days a week, then you have this ability to do focused work that can make you much faster and much more productive. But what we are seeing right now is still the worst of both worlds because people are working full-time remote. They have all of these interruptions throughout the day and then their, their most important work spreads into their personal, personal time. And that as much as anything is what we need to fix by reopening offices just enough that people could actually reclaim some of their time at home for other parts of their life. I'd love to hear from our listeners if you've been struggling with that balance and how your managers respond uh, to uh, the, the frequent Zoom meetings and uh, expecting you to be reachable. Uh, again, the number 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You know, when we talk about what we're seeing nationwide, uh, Mark from Data Haven wanted to remind uh, us in this conversation that while most college grads may be remote, it's important to remember that remote work is still rare in many places. Can you talk about that, Alex? Mm -hmm. Well, absolutely. And, and you know, I, I, one of the things that we need to remember in particular about COVID is that part of the reason that COVID hit African-American and Latino communities particularly hard is because remote work is a privilege and it's not evenly distributed. 
And white people were more likely to be in jobs that could be done remotely. People of color were more likely to be in jobs that required them to be on site. And that meant that people of color literally put their lives on the line in order to keep organizations going during the pandemic, while white people kind of retreated into their suburban bedrooms and and had the luxury of, of doing their jobs in a different way. And, you know, that pattern you know, exists across countries as well as as within. Um, I haven't seen data that specifically looks at um, rates of remote work in different countries, but I think we know that our electronics, as scarce as they have become at times during COVID, are not being manufactured by Chinese workers in their houses, right? So, you know, we are are asking people in in different communities around the world and in our own country to put their lives at risk in order to make goods um, and people who are in knowledge work kind of careers may have that opportunity to work remotely, but it's not an opportunity that's being afforded to everyone. And we have really got to engage with the equity impact of, of remote work, even as we look to some of its um, social and environmental benefits. Alex, you wrote your book, I believe, uh, several years ago, uh, Remote Inc., How to Thrive at Work, Wherever You Are. And I'm curious if you could talk through, you know, some of the lessons uh, that uh, managers are learning. Or are you surprised that it's taken so long for companies to adapt, to think about this? We had to have a, a public health crisis, a worldwide pandemic uh, right. uh, to, to have these kinds of conversations. Well, you know, it's funny. I am. Um... I actually have written about remote work for a long time because I've been working remotely for so much of my career. But Bob and I only um, met during the pandemic. Well, we still haven't met. Uh, my co-author and I uh, <laughs> connected over email early in the pandemic and wrote the entire book remotely without ever meeting. So actually, our, our book is kind of a testament to what's possible when you're working remotely. And it was really a fascinating process because it meant that we were interviewing people and surveying people about their experiences with remote work in the in the really in the height of the pandemic when there was no option except to work remotely for many people. And um, it, it was an interesting process, particularly comparing the experiences. About half the people we interviewed for the book were new to remote work during the pandemic, and the other half were people who'd been working remotely for you know quite quite a few years. And it really brought home this issue of how much um, effort and thought it takes to develop a good remote work strategy, either individually or as an organization. Because, you know, when we were speaking to people last summer, the folks who were new to remote work were often still struggling with that transition, trying to figure out how to make it work for their families, trying to figure out how to make it work with their employers. Whereas folks who had been working remotely for many years um, had developed the strategies, the rhythms. And yes, you know, COVID disrupted a lot of those strategies. I mean, speaking personally, I used to work in a coffee shop a lot of the time. I would make co-working dates with other friends who work remotely. And that was a big part of both my kind of collaboration process and just like my sanity. Um, so so that obviously changed during the pandemic. Um, but fundamentally, that ability to craft an effective remote work approach is something you can develop. It's just hard to develop overnight and during a pandemic. Mm -hmm. So what will you be watching for in the next few months, Alex? You know, well, does it make sense that hybrid is here to stay? 
Absolutely. And I think it's just such wonderful news. And, you know, part of the reason I, I have the bit between my teeth on this issue is because, you know, when you think about a lot of the big challenges we have both in in the workplace and in the world, remote work and the shift to hybrid is an opportunity to address some of our most pressing concerns. I mean, for sure, it, it can be part of the picture of mitigating climate change. We, you know, the difference between bringing people back to the office one day a week and bringing people back to the office four or five days a week is a significant contributor to um, either meeting the Paris targets or failing to meet the Paris targets. Um, you think about all of the concerns we have around the loss of life in our local communities, the dis disappearance of small town economies. If people can work remotely from cities, you know, from smaller cities or from rural communities, instead of, you know, feeling like you have to move to San Francisco or New York to get a job, that provides an incredible engine for community economic development. Uh, the struggle that we see in working families to find childcare, to find housing. I mean, these are all problems that could be dramatically affected by shifting to a world in which people go to the office, even you know, two days a week rather than five days a week. So what I really hope is that we seize this opportunity uh, it's not very often that you're in a situation where you make a massive social change overnight. Um, and, and it's that change that is the painful moment. And we've already gone through that pain. So let's not put those wins um, in the garbage can after all <laughs> that we've gone through over these 18 months. Let's take the benefits we've found from working remotely and build on them by actually taking this opportunity to do what we didn't do early in the pandemic, which is make a deliberate strategy for how remote work is gonna, is gonna function within our organizations, how it's gonna support our teams to work more effectively, and how it is gonna support our society and our communities in revitalizing local communities and actually reducing the carbon footprint of, of modern workplaces. Alexandra Samuel, again, author of Remote Inc., How to Thrive at Work Wherever You Are, a frequent contributor to the Wall Street Journal. Alex, thanks for your time today. Thanks so much for having me. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. After the break, we talk about how employers are adapting the office space as more companies embrace a long-term hybrid work schedule. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Our office space is filled with cubicles and that fluorescent lighting on the way out as more companies embrace different office designs to encourage collaboration. Uh, joining us now on Zoom is Kylie Roth, Vice President of Research at Knoll, a design firm and manufacturer that creates furniture and office spaces. Kylie, welcome. Hey, welcome. Thanks for having me. So we know that the uh, hybrid seems to be getting more and more embraced, even though, um, you know, we've been doing this for 16 months now. It might be permanent in certain places. And so when we think about designing office spaces, uh, what are employers thinking about? Yeah, I mean, to your to your early open comment there, I think people were already organizations were already looking to kind of remove that Dilbert 
mindset that we had in the past at the office with the fluorescent lighting. So really, but organizations, as you pointed out, are really looking to recalibrate what they we would consider our managed workplace. So the majority of organizations really, in some sense, are looking maybe to lower their, their square footage percentage, but they're also looking to redesign that interior environment to become more flexible, more collaborative, uh, as organizations realize that people can do some of their work at home, as we've heard from Jill and Alex earlier, they're looking at how they can create an environment that it really bring and draws people back into the environment and how it can support more socialization, collaboration, brainstorming within the office environment to really become, and also looking at how the environment may become more look casual and feel. You know, we spent a lot of time at home during the pandemic and many of us have gotten used to working in a more casual environment. So employers are looking at kind of bringing that kind of mentality or that hospitality back to the, the workplace itself. You know, uh, several years ago, my husband got a very fancy office chair for me. And I'm like, how at home? And I'm like, why? Why'd you get that? When am I going to use it? And it was been a godsend during this pandemic. So can you talk about, you know, when we think about these new designs, like, you know, not only uh, making about co-working spaces, but making sure that people are comfortable and able to do their job uh, when they're in. Sure. And I think, you know, to your point of the office chair, that's one of the at home office environment chair. That's one of the things we've heard from mo many organizations over the pandemic. They thought that they had ergonomics figured out in the office environment, right? They had ergonomic chairs, height adjustable tables. But when, you know, we send masses amounts of people home, those office environments in the home weren't figured out in the same way. So we that's been a huge point of conversation of how to get ergonomics, making sure that people are supported at home and also as they kind of navigate back into the office office environment. And uh, wait, one of the things we talked about is also, oh, sorry, I was going to mention like co-working mm -hmm. spaces. We see that yeah. as a growing opportunity for organizations in the post-COVID environment. We did a survey and we found that, you know, one third of our survey participants currently use co-working, but another third of are really looking at how they can increase their use of co-working spaces or what we're calling the workplace ecosystem. We used to think of the office as simply a building, but now we're seeing the office or the workspace as really an ecosystem of places that includes the home, that includes the home, that you know, your traditional office environment. I, Alex talked about she used to go to a coffee shop. Again, that's all part of the workplace ecosystem that organizations now need to figure out how to support their employees working wherever they are. It's no longer just about a workspace, it's about these different work points and how people navigate through those different points. Unfortunately, we're not out of this pandemic just yet. And so when we think about uh, workplaces that are inviting staff back in, thinking about making it safe as well, uh, Kylie? Yeah, I think, you know, this is one of the things that we've been, you know, challenged with. I think organizations, many people were like, oh, we're going to have people back in fall. And now that, that we're dealing with this new variant, I think there's, you know, many organizations are in kind of that wait and see mode. But one of the things that we're seeing really out of the pandemic is that organizations want to be more flexible with their space, you know, really prioritizing how things can evolve over time um, and how that they can really shift and adapt. So if a space needs to have an allocation for two people today or three people tomorrow, how the space can support that flexibility. We're seeing a lot more interest in what we call unassigned or shared spaces, especially for those individual workspaces. We're seeing organizations really want to plan for a space of about one, um, one person for about every, or one space for about every three people. So they have that kind of sharing ratio. Again, some people might be, oh, it's a little concerning, especially in the current health crisis to be sharing these environments. 
But again, that's how organizations are really looking to plan to the future to allow that flexibility so that they can better navigate these types of environments, like these types of pandemics and, and circumstances later on. Last question for you, Kylie, uh, just a couple of minutes left. You know, how does this impact the bottom line when we think about, you know, long-term office space leases and when you think about cutting costs, you don't want to have an empty building, you're still paying for it. Yeah, I think one of the things we're seeing is organizations, they might be reallocating their square footages and some of them are certainly shedding some square footage, but building these collaborative types of environments require a significant amount of space as well. So you might be looking to reduce the amount of individual spaces, but greatly increasing the number of meeting spaces within the environment and also looking at like open air solutions, outdoor spaces have become increasingly popular and how you can get people to work outside and navigate through the entire environment just not at their individual desk. Kelly Roth, again, is Vice President of Research at Knoll. It's a design firm, a manufacturer that creates furniture and office spaces. Is there, uh, real quick, uh, when we think about office spaces and, and designing uh, workplaces, uh, what types of furniture that people, you might be go- going further to consumers at home and, and the way that uh, they craft uh, their work from home settings, Kylie? Yeah, we're seeing a lot more of height adjustable desks within the, the sorry, the work from home setting, ergonomic chairs, lots of bins and cubbies placed to pin up on the walls so that you can see everything in front of you, monitor arms, again, just really trying to create a more ergonomic environment within the home office setting. Well, Kylie, thank you for your time today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible, our technical producer. She's the MVP helping us do our remote work, our remote shows. That's Kat Pastor. Now, coming up tomorrow, the 5th Congressional District stretches from Danbury to the Massachusetts state line. It's been the center of some of the most intense and interesting congressional fights in recent years. Tomorrow, Republican candidate George Logan discusses his bid to unseat Democratic Congresswoman Johanna Hayes. We hope you join us for that conversation. 